So then it, it is identifying an individual, knowing that that individual, you don't have to know their name. I always try to remember the fact that you may not know the name of your neighbor, but you can certainly identify them. Same kind of thing. You don't have to be able to attach this online information to a person's offline world in order for it to count as personal information. The time is not too far ahead when you will be able to have a box about so big on your desk which has a little screen on it and a dial. And after dialing a key code, you will dial the catalogue number of any book in the Library of Congress if you want to. And at any rate that you wish, the spread pages of that book will appear on your television screen. Welcome back to the Lock and Shield podcast presented by Newstar, where we connect the dots for you, exposing threats and discussing the security issues both small businesses and large enterprises need to navigate. I'm your host, John MacArthur, Director of Security Intelligence within Newstar Security Solutions Group. And back with us today is Paige Enoch, Product Manager for Ultra Geopoint and Ultra Reputation Products. Paige, how are you doing? Hey, John. I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Great to have you back. Um, Paige, I should say, Paige was pretty focused the last few weeks on product deliverables for the Geopoint and Reputation Products, so it is good to have her back for the discussion. Now, today's discussion is a deep dive on some of the data privacy considerations we encounter as product managers of data feed solutions. As more and more data privacy regulation is enacted, such as GDPR or CCPA, and we'll talk about what those mean shortly, we often have requests for information around collection methods or just general information about how we adhere to these new policies. And as Paige and I think about launching new products, we meet with our privacy team here at Newstar to confirm adherence with current regulations. So joining us today to help speak to these considerations is our own Nicole Killen, Newstar's Chief Privacy Officer. Now, Nicole has over 15 years of experience in technology law, primarily focused on transactions and product counseling. Her focus shifted around 2010 when businesses not already subject to data privacy regulation like healthcare and finance started to become under scrutiny, and it became clear that a new kind of legal specialist would be needed, one focused on integrating data privacy into the deepest levels of all business units and functions. She is focused on leveling up discussions about data privacy to understand how we got where we are and how to move forward in a manner based on common sense. Nicole, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Now, as we get started, let's just, let's just start with the basics. Um, can you give us a quick overview around the history of digital privacy with the rise of the internet? Was it always an issue or is it a, a more of a recent concept? Sure. Um, I'm happy to start with digital data privacy and skip over all the developments in the concepts of just a general right to privacy, a right to privacy and information. There's a lot of, of potential content there. But digital privacy really became an issue in the 60s with the rise of the computer, of the mainframe. The computer didn't merely increase the amount of information that entities co could collect. It changed how the data was organized, accessed, and searched. Unlike manual systems such as telephone books, computers can be programmed to sort or recognize data on the basis of particular index, attributes, characteristics, um, and it didn't have to be a single index. It could be a person's first and last name. It could be attributes of that person, and these things could be mixed and matched and searched 
through a database. Um, and in the early 70s, it was actually the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare that really started the discussion of what are the principles of data privacy. Now, we all know about GDPR. We know how privacy forward the EEA and the European Union is. But I like to remind people that the principles underlying all of this started in the U.S. <laughs> um, and so in the 70s, in the context of educational records, really, and health records, and the fact that now we had all this information that could be searched all these different ways, um, this agency put out a report called the, the Hugh Report in 1973. And that identified some basic principles that still guide us today in all of these laws. Um, in the 1980s, uh, these principles were actually taken out uh, internationally. And the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development uh, that sets international standards in this area adopted what's commonly known today as the fair information principles. And there's eight of them. And if you look at those eight, and then you look at GDPR, you look at CCPA, you look at the other uh, states and countries that are coming online, they all come within those principles. Okay. Got it. So this isn't something that just sort of started in the last five, 10 years with social network and use of cookies for targeted advertising. This is something that has a deep history, even going, it sounds like really starting around, you know, health records, education records. Yes, exactly. And in the United States, that kind of sectoral focus is where it has stayed up until recently, meaning you have privacy principles in sectoral laws, those governing healthcare. You, of course, have HIPAA, and you, of course, have COPA with regards to children's uh, online activity. You have financial regulations regarding your financial records or your credit records, uh, and it kind of stays siloed like that. Whereas in the EU, especially with the European economic area and then the EU developing, they have a more overarching, um, all sectors are kind of brought uh, under it uh, form of privacy law. And that's actually the norm of most countries. The US is kind of the odd man out on that. So California has started the role. Mm -hmm. And it's moving on from there. So as we talk about moving on from, you know, from this or, or this regulation being enacted, I guess one of the one of the basic questions that we talked about this in preparation, I was I was sort of looking for this uh, black and white definition, if you will, or, or answer to what is PII? What data elements make up something that's personally identifiable or identifying information? And you mentioned when we talked about this, you said PII is more of a data term or excuse me, it's more of a dated term, uh, out of date. And instead, we need to be thinking about just general personal information, inclusive of both something that's identifiable or identifying. Yes. Yeah. Can you sort of break that down and, and why the change? Yeah, I, I am kind of strict on this internally uh, because I want people to be using consistent terms. If we're not speaking the same language, then we're not coming to the same conclusions. Um, PII is... A, a very common term, but it actually 
has no consistent definition. Uh, it's been used since the early 70s, again, in these sector-specific laws, um, sometimes without definition at all. Other times uh, without with a definition, but the definitions are different between the laws. But generally, it's become a part of our vernacular as it's, it's type of personal information that people are generally more concerned about, what they generally think of as personal information. So that would be things like your, your name in combination with, because people, you know, I think uh, Jim, James Smith is the most common name in the U.S. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of common names, but that connected with a unique identifier, such as your social security number, um, your driver's license number. Those unique numbers themselves are identifying information because there's only one of them. And then information that enables a person to contact you directly, your mailing address, your direct mailing address. And these days, your email address, your um, social media handle, your username for your mobile app communication device, things that allow a person to directly contact you. Now, those are the things that people generally think about as PII, but as I said, there is no common definition. And whether you're talking about PII or you're talking about the broader term, PI, personal information or personal data, and I'll use those interchangeably as we talk about it, it's still covered in the same way by the same statutes. So I want people, when we're talking about this internally in compliance with the regulation, to not be thinking about, oh, but I'm, I'm not using this type of information that the general public deems more attached to them, more important to them. I don't care. You're using PI. And that's what the statute is governing. So that's why I'm, I'm kind of strict about it. But I understand why people want to use the term PI and have, why businesses want to use it in, say, their privacy notices that consumers read because it is important to make clear to them if you are not collecting or you're not using or not using in a specific way, the types of personal information that you know people are more concerned about, that they deem more important to them. So it, yes, you want to talk about it in that way. But when we're talking about it and whether we're complying with the regulation or not or have to comply with the regulation or not, we're going to talk about PI. Thanks, Nicole. That definitely helps add some clarity around those terms and exactly what, what we're talking about. If we're thinking very specifically about UltraGeoPoint, our UltraGeoPoint product for which we offer geolocation data and other network attributes around IP addresses, mm -hmm. how can we think about PI in that context? For a security business, should we be considering those attributes PI? Absolutely. Uh, PI, personal information or personal data, is defined in the GDPR and the CCPA and the 
new laws that are coming online, but we can generally think of it as John said when he used the words identifying or identifiable. Identifying, pretty easy. Um, you can just refer back to PII and kind of deem it that. Identifiable is more difficult. That can be not just the information you have, but in connection with other information that you may not have and that you may feel that you really don't have a real ability to even get. But if the information you have can be linked with other information that then becomes identifying, that's identifiable information. And um, things like online identifiers, whether it be IP address, whether it be a cookie, whether it be a mobile advertising ID, a device ID, that is deemed to be able to be identifiable. That if you had, say, IP address and the ISP was willing to give you their records, that you could then identify that person. That, that's not reasonable. But also when you get down to it, when you have these elements, even if themselves are not identifying, you're not usually throwing them all in a bucket. You're usually putting them in a, in a database that is attached to some sort of other unique identifier. So then it, it is identifying an individual, knowing that that individual, you don't have to know their name. I always try to remember the fact that you may not know the name of your neighbor, but you can certainly identify them. Mm. Same kind of thing. You don't have to be able to attach this online information to a person's offline world in order for it to count as personal information. You have this group of, of information that you know belongs to one individual, individual X. That is personal information. Now, whether individual X can come along and make um, a request under the applicable law, whether they want to know what, their, what data you hold on them, whether they, you want to delete it, whether they want you to stop processing it, processing it for some reason, um, is another story. Because you, of course, have to be able to know that the person contacting you is, in fact, person X. But that doesn't mean, that problem doesn't mean that it's not personal information and doesn't have to be treated as such under the statute. Gotcha. So it sounds like IP address is certainly classified as PI. Absolutely. Though it would take additional data points to create a bigger picture. And is also further compounded by the problem that IP address behavior can change quite frequently and may not truly be linked to an individual. So the IP certainly represents the connection point for the device, but that could be a Starbucks where a user is connecting to a hotspot uh, also, IP address, the IP address space is consistently reassigned uh, quite frequently. Various ISPs will cycle through IP addresses, and the linkage between an individual and an IP is not generally not static. Exactly, exactly. But that's why an IP address is uh, generally used in connection with a grouping of activities, a, a series of activities. So the thought is is that the one-offs that don't match that I was at Starbucks, that's 
would be connected with an identity or a profile that you're looking at that doesn't kind of stand out as having any sort of pattern or something that you would actually rely on and use. Now, as we think about, and obviously we were talking about GDPR and CCPA, what, I mean, sort of what does the current regulatory environment look like? We know those two regulations have passed, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what each of those sort of mean right. uh, with the reporting to do. And I think the other question is, what else is going, those are the two big ones we hear about, but what else is going on globally that we should be aware of from a privacy regulation standpoint? Yeah, so the GDPR and is kind of the baseline here. So every other law, they'll talk about whether it is GDPR-like or not. And GDPR-like, uh, in my mind, has some general principles. Again, going back to the 70s and what the Hugh Report talked about, you know, the concept that you need to be open, that you need to disclose to people the purposes for which you're collecting and using their information. And it'll vary between statute of whether you need to get consent or if you just need to, to disclose that particular use. Um, you have to then use that information only for the purposes that you disclosed or got consent for. And when those purposes are fulfilled, you, you need to delete that information. You no longer need it. You need to get rid of it. These, these are all kind of data minimization principles that every company has to take a fresh look at. Because especially with the, the rise in cloud storage, for a while there, companies got really used to the fact that storage was cheap. We should keep everything for as long as we could possibly need it. You know, they became data hoarders. We may need it at some point in some time in the future for some reason. And you can't do that because you told the individual you were going to use it for this purpose. You've used it for that purpose. That purpose is done. You need to get rid of it. So that's kind of the first part. Then the second part is it gives people certain rights to control their information. That may be to find out in more specific detail than, than is in your privacy notice what information you have in your systems that relates to them. Uh, the right to delete that. Of course, both of these are subject to certain limitations and exceptions. And the right for to tell you to stop using it, commonly known as processing it, for a particular purpose, such as stop selling it, as the CCPA um, uses the term sale. Um, stop uh, using it for purposes of behavioral or targeted advertising. That is a new um, purpose for which you can restrict use of information under the CPRA, which, by the way, did replace the CCPA already. It's just that it's not going to be fully enacted until January 1st. 2023. So we've already, so there's already, <laughs> there's already been sort of a, a, a change. And that's a rather, yes, but that's because it's California, John. <laughs> there we go. So yeah, but the, also the, the other state laws that have, that did manage to get through last session, Virginia and Colorado, 
Uh, Virginia will become effective the same date as the CPRA, January 1st, 2023. In Colorado, we will become effective July 1st of 2023. Both of those also follow the same uh, kind of rules that a person can opt out of the sale of their personal information and the use of their personal information for behavioral advertising. Those laws also come, bring into play the ability to opt out of use of your, quote, sensitive information for any purpose. Um, of course, they're, again, they're subject to exclusions if you have that because you need it to provide the services that a consumer has asked for. Of, of course, you have to keep it. If you need it because you are in a, um, the, the law requires you to keep it. You know, you've been subpoenaed or something. Of course, you can keep it. There, there's always exceptions, but we're just talking about general kind of rules here. Uh, so those laws have kind of brought in the details, but again, the general principles remain the same. The individual should have a good level of control over their information. The third principle is basically security. Protect this stuff. Um, as we've discussed before, John, you know, security is a big part of privacy, that you can't have privacy without security. Other way around, though, is not true. You can have security without having privacy. So to have privacy, you need to have secure systems. And then the last one is be accountable. Make sure that you are keeping records and can show that you've done the things that you needed to do to comply with the first three. Keeping those principles in mind, principles are set out in 1973, will get you through all of this. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy then to kind of carve out the rights of a visitor coming from one state versus another state, and the fact that one state may, uh, the GDPR provides for a 30-day period to generally um, fulfill data subject requests, whereas the CCPA has 45 days for access and deletion, but 15 days for <laughs> opt-out of sale. And I'm not saying that those things aren't going to change and be different, and those are major operational issues to have to jump over, but the principles that you need to keep in mind to feel comfortable that you are being privacy friendly are all the same. Understood. Hi, it's John. I wanted to take a break from the podcast to dive a little deeper into the history of privacy. As we're discussing on today's podcast, the roots of privacy law go back decades before the creation of the internet that we know today. In fact, it can be traced to 1967, when the book Privacy and Freedom was published. From a blog post on Osano.com, the book's author, Alan Weston, is considered the father of modern privacy law. Before publication of the book, the concept of privacy centered on limiting the government's control over individuals' bodily autonomy, images and photographs, or setting guidelines around wiretap. In Privacy and Freedom, Weston defined privacy as the claim of individuals, groups, or institutions to determine for themselves 
when, how, and to what extent information about them is communicated to others. The blog post continues that Weston argued citizens should retain ultimate control over their personal data, including how much of the personal information is disclosed, to whom, how it should be maintained, and how it should be disseminated, therefore creating the groundwork for current understandings of online privacy laws way before the internet was even a thing. In 1972, Weston followed up the success of Privacy and Freedom with his book, Data Banks in a Free Society. There, he more deeply addressed the growing practice of computerizing personal records in government, commercial, and nonprofit organizations. Weston worked closely with senators in drafting the Federal Privacy Act of 1974, which was the first law to delimit the gathering and use of personal information by the federal government. This would set a legislative framework for how privacy issues would be treated by the United States government and also made Weston a popular consultant across the globe, where he was in high demand with businesses, governments, and advocacy groups. It's interesting to note that despite what seems a more recent focus on our data privacy, these issues have existed for decades, with modern privacy legislation having its roots back in 1967. Now back to the podcast. So in thinking through some of the details around GDPR and the implementation there, one of the major questions that we often get asked by prospects is around data in transit and data at rest. What is the significance of how or where the data is stored and how does GDPR define that? Right. So GDPR, um, you know, with the European Union and with many other uh, countries that actually have what is considered are considered GDPR-like laws, like Brazil, which Brazil has been enacted for a while. Um, enforcement just began the beginning of this month. They all have the concept of data sovereignty. And by that, they want to make sure that they are protecting um, the individuals who have the protection under their laws. And note, I'm not saying EU citizens because it's more complicated than that. Um, but the people intended there to protect the data subjects under GDPR. They want to make sure that wherever their information goes in the world, that it is subject to the same level of protections. And that brings in the concept of transfers. And transfers are what you would normally think of as transfer, as data was in uh, the EU, and it was transferred to a database in the US. Clearly a transfer. But transfer is also commonly understood as a person in a different jurisdiction accessing the data. So if you're in the US and you um, pull data or you just uh, process data, you apply some analytics to data that is sitting in the EU, a transfer may be deemed to have occurred. So in those cases, you need to make sure that the place that you're transferring it to gives data subjects the same protections. Now, unfortunately, the U.S. and the protections federally that are offered are not, quote, adequate under the GDPR. 
And therefore, we need a different transfer mechanism. And this is kind of how I got started in the business generally, in this particular focus in my legal career. It's quite a specialty. I will say that. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) But it came along when there was this thing called safe harbor. When I started really practicing B2C, you know, business to consumer laws, where I was really dealing with consumer issues. Uh, And I had learned what safe harbor was. It came around in 2010, uh, actually 2000. And because I started doing this about 2008 in the consumer sector. Um, And what it's all about was since the US is not adequate, and I like just saying that, um, (laughs) there had to be a mechanism put in place. So the EU commission, um, the commission that is kind of the agency, executive agency side of the EEA and, you know, handles the GDPR, negotiated with the Department of State a set of rules that would be followed and that if companies signed up to these rules with the State Department and had mechanisms for policing those and solving conflicts under those, that that would be an adequate transfer mechanism. So great. Everybody followed Safe Harbor. Then um, the European courts took a look, obviously because a suit was brought, but they took a look at Safe Harbor and said, um, mm, no, we don't think so. Not good enough. So in 2015, they say Safe Harbor fell. (laughs) And Pretty quickly, a new one was negotiated. Privacy shield. Great. We have another transfer mechanism. Well, sorry, guys. (laughs) Privacy shield fell also. So we're going back to another mechanism, a mechanism that has been around for a long time, even before GDPR, called the standard contractual clauses. And these are truly standard. And we actually have new ones, um, that if anybody doesn't know that deals with them, they need to move all their agreements over to the new ones and pretty quickly. Um, but these are, again, it's just standard agreements that with every like data processing agreement, DPA that you sign with the company, if European data is involved, Attached with it will be the standard contractual clauses. And there's some parts you fill out about what exactly you're processing, how you're processing it. You have to set forth your security requirements. But these are set terms. So they're not terms that were negotiated between the EU Commission and the State Department. These are terms that have been agreed to as adequate. And that's what we're kind of working on now while, again, the EU Commission and the State Department work out another mechanism. And we'll see how long that one lasts. Okay, well, given sort of the fluidity around some of these regulations, um, let me ask, how are companies responding to the regulations? And have you seen, like, have you seen the compliance burden differ as we look at smaller versus larger companies? Yes, the compliance burden differs in that, and it's, it's not necessarily that larger companies have larger data burdens. Um, it really depends upon 
the sophistication of your operations. If you're in a business that relies on personal information, um, that you collect a lot of it, that you process it, that you disseminate it to other people, you're going to have a really complicated burden. If you are a, a company that runs a website that provides content that people really like and that you um, monetize and are able to support that site by showing advertisements, your burden will be less. Um, your compliance, the complications will be less. Not to say that those still aren't complicated because whether dissemination of someone's IP address and cookie information throughout the ad tech ecosystem, whether that is a quote sale or not under CCPA, is still something that people generally disagree about. But if you're not touching a lot of personal information, especially offline personal information, the burden's going to be less. But you can't get in this business where you're collecting all this information, especially offline information, and using it in all these variety of ways and not face this burden. It really is a barrier to entry. And if you've already done it, then I don't know what to say because you, you may not be able to continue. If you started out small and now you're subject to all of these requirements. But quite frankly, if you are collecting all that personal information, you should have been a little scared already. Because <laughs> breach hits you, you would have already had massive troubles. Hey there, want to take a quick break from the podcast and talk to you about our Ultra Geopoint database. Are you looking for an easy to integrate IP geo database? Ultra Geopoint provides powerful IP geolocation and proxy data to help you identify and block fraudulent transactions, deliver OTT and streaming media, ensure compliance, and mitigate security threats. The Ultra Geopoint data is made available in a few different ways via RESTful API, an on premise virtual server, and flat file to seamlessly integrate into your application stack. And this summer, we are launching a Splunk technical add on to allow Splunk users to leverage the insights of Ultra Geopoint in their security and traffic management use cases. To learn more, please visit home.newstar and navigate to the security solutions section. That makes perfect sense. It's not a question of how, how large a company is in dealing with its compliance. It's really about what are you collecting? And given what you're collecting, if you're not large enough to sustain you know, the right sort of expertise on staff, it may not be mm -hmm. the right business model for you. Exactly. Got it. So we've talked a bit about some of the recent policies in Virginia and Colorado, but could you give us an idea of what's on the horizon globally and within the U.S. as far as future regulations? Sure. Um, as I said, the CCPA uh, is already preempted by the CPRA, but it's just not going to go into full effect yet. Um, there were several states that at the end of the last legislative session had uh, GDPR-like laws um, in play, including Washington State, uh, Maryland, West Virginia, Connecticut. Uh, they failed to pass those laws by the time that legislative session ended. Uh, they're expected to pick it up again and try again. I'll note that Washington State, this will be their third try 
in getting it done before that particular legislative session ends. And again, all of those laws follow the same fair information principles, but are slightly different and, and treat things slightly differently, which is one of the reasons why I think, of course, states are not looking unfavorably upon federal action in this area, which over the years, there has been. There, there's, there's been attempts. There's been bills introduced that have gone to committee even. Um, but as we know, the world has some big things going on these days. The United States has a lot to handle, and none of those have gone across the finish line. And generally, there's there's a couple of things that people generally believe are the main holdups to those, uh, the big contentious issues. One being whether violation uh, would lead to a private right of action. A private right of action meaning if a statute is violated that the uh, individual who uh, whose information was not properly used under the statute has a right to sue in their own capacity rather than the statute only being enforced by a regulator such as the agency, such as the attorney general in a state, or the the federal privacy law is generally seen as something that will be regulated by the FTC. And the reason that a private right of action is something that's contentious is that when an individual can sue, when there is a group of individuals who are similarly situated, you can have a class, and hence a class action lawsuit obviously a contentious issue. So that's the first part that the two sides of the aisle would have to be able to come to agreement on. The other issue is preemption. Does the federal law preempt any state law on the same issue? And there's different kinds of preemption. It could preempt uh, on an actual conflict of the provisions. It could preempt any action by the state in this area. It could uh, allow for the federal law to be a floor and allow the states to provide stricter requirements. So that's another thing that the two sides of the aisle have to come to agree. Let me uh, let me just ask about that really quickly. Who is the ultimate arbiter of if federal law can preempt state law or vice versa? Like where where does that take place? Well, the, this. The federal law here would come under the Commerce Clause, which is a general law that would, obviously, we have interstate commerce when we're talking about this kind of stuff. So it is an area that has been uh, given by, in, in the Constitution, as an area that the federal government regulates. By that, combined with the Supremacy Clause, the, anything the federal government regulates and has the right to make laws for, as opposed to everything else that's left to the states, those laws are supreme. They are the supreme laws of the land. 
But the actual statute, the wording of the statute, the intent of the statute will indicate the level of preemption that was intended by the federal government. Understood. And I guess then if there, if there did continue to be conflict, this is when we would see something actually get raised to the level of the Supreme Court to settle. Yep. Understood. Yes, that sounds like a lot more regulation and legislation to come there. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it would be a good start. It, I mean, there are uniform laws now being proposed um, by uh, different kinds of uh, organizations that deal in privacy or consumer laws. And having that kind of base for federal law would certainly be welcome and helpful because there's always going to be, no matter who is making the law, down to even your local government, there's always going to be ambiguity. There's always going to be things that are, people differ on their construction of what the law says and how it was meant to be applied. That's always going to be happen. So the fact that it's going to happen at, at the federal level, I, I don't think is a huge deterrent to just trying to get something at the federal level. Gotcha. So switching our perspective a little bit to consumers, we've talked a lot about the legislative perspective. It seems that there's a, a general awareness of the big name regulations, so GDPR, CCPA, but there does seem to be kind of a lack of education around what that actually means for a consumer. Could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I think GDPR is better understood by Europeans than CCPA is understood by Californians. And the reason for this is that the GDPR really follows the common understanding about the need for privacy that Europeans have and that they have based on history. You know, it's, it's really focused on protecting their civil liberties, their, their right to practice a religion and not be persecuted for it. And things that really humanitarian types of things. And that's kind of what it's focused on. Though it, of course, has the IP addresses and all of that stuff. And, you know, there is the e-privacy law called the cookie law that we've been waiting for years to be redone. That was supposed, the new version of that was supposed to happen the same time as GDPR. And that didn't happen. So it's not that they're not focused on the internet and advertising on the internet, but the common understanding of people on the street is consistent with GDPR. Now you go to the CCPA and the discussions that have been had in the United States, and there, there of course, is a camp of people who are concerned about their personal lives being um, used against that, their, their religion, their ethnic origin, their sexual preferences, their sexual identity being used against them. There's certainly um, that group. But there's a larger focus than in Europe on online advertising. And the fact that not just that the shoes that you looked at are somehow following you around the internet and you feel violated in your home because of that, 
that's not really the focus. The focus is that there is information being collected about you based on your activity on the internet that nobody is disseminating what sites you looked at or anything that you would deem personal to, you know, uh, looking up a health question or something of that extent, but they are building profiles on you. And those profiles allow for better targeted advertising, advertising targeted more towards you. And that's the way that the publisher of the website that has content that you go and look at every day because you really like it and they don't have a paywall, that's how they keep bringing you that content. But unfortunately, sometimes people only look at the fact that you're making money off of something I own. Now, ownership of this personal data is a totally different subject that we can get into on a philosophical level. But that's more of the focus in the U.S. And I think that kind of takes away from the larger discussion that has to be had of understanding how the internet works, how technology works in general, not just the internet, but any connected device, anything that you rely upon in your day-to-day activities, that if it just stopped, you would be at best really annoyed. <laughs> well, well, fair enough. But along those lines, from a consumer's perspective, again, what what is the what is sort of the, I'll say the future of data privacy? I mean, is data governance on the path to making sort of these these checks and balances, or or maybe uh, understanding of how data is used? Is that is that becoming more of reality? Is that what's on the horizon here? Um, well, I mean, data governance is extremely important for privacy. It's extremely important for being able to deal with these regulations because without data governance. If you're ingesting all this personal information from different sources, different types, synonymized data, uh, all this kind of stuff, you have to be tagging it. You have to be putting it in systems with certain access controls, certain use restrictions. You have to be able to pull it. And if a, a person is asking for access, collect it and show a person, this is the data I have on you, you have to be able to delete it. You have to be able to stop processing it in certain ways. And without data governance, making sure that all of that is organized, you could never do it. You know, the times of, of just dumping all of your data into a big database and then writing scripts every time that you needed to find something or possibly having to pull apart an entire database to get to one little kernel of it. You can't do that. It's it's not practical. Um, And data governance makes sure that when a consumer has either has consented or them being deemed to have consented by you giving the proper notices, that those rules flow through the data and, and can be reasonably complied with because you you can't comply with data privacy regulations if you can't find and parse out the information in your systems. So that's where data governance comes in. And and, and that makes perfect sense. 
Um, we are, we're just about out of time, but you've gone over um, quite a bit of information as we've talked about data privacy. I was going to say, do you have any final thoughts, you know, uh, before, before we end here, just about data privacy and just maybe some general best, best practices? Uh, sure. I think going back again to where we started, first principles, just go back to first principles. I'm sorry to tell you that regulations are going to keep changing. There's going to be new regulations. Regulations are going to be different. And the regulators are rarely going to provide you with the kind of specific guidance for your situation that you would really want. And your own counsel is likely, in many circumstances, not going to be able to give you that guidance either. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing for you to do. You go back to the fair information principles. And you make sure you're disclosing everything that you're doing. Make sure you get consent where consent is required. Make sure that you have a practice in place where you're only using it for those reasons. That you're, proper, that you're practicing proper data hygiene and not keeping everything and purging. Look at that information as, yes, it's an asset, but it, it's also representing a risk team now. Do you really need it? Respect the user's rights to know and to be able to, in some circumstances, have you delete their information or stop using it for some purposes. And make sure that you're keeping records so that you can be held accountable. Fall back on first principles. And you can always say that you're being privacy forward. Those make, I mean, those seem like absolute common sense ways to approach this. And I'm still astounded that regulation passed in the early 70s still holds so much merit today. Oh, well, that was just a report. That was just a report. But, it, but yeah, obviously. <laughs> but it was the United States. Obviously on the mark, um, although, um, you know, several decades ago. But with that, we're now out of time. And Nicole, let me say, Thank you so much for joining us and lending your expertise to this discussion. It was, it was fascinating. No, it was great. great. Thanks. And Paige, it is great to have you back on the podcast after a few weeks. Um, so thank you for being here. Thank you. Great to be here. And finally, to our listeners, thank you for listening in. We look forward to catching up with you soon.